with the Lord. I'd ask you to turn with me to Ephesians, the epistle to the Ephesians, or the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Let us hear the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Trust the Lord to bless this word to our hearts. Let us pray together for his help one last time. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for the word of Christ. We are thankful that you have brought us here today to such a glorious portion of your word. And Lord, we are at the entrance of this book, and we ask, O God, that you will cause this meditation today, this message to be a grand entrance into this glorious epistle. We pray that you would bless us each, O Lord, and that you would undertake for us, Lord. We know that we have nothing in and of ourselves, Lord. And I am not able to preach this word effectively without the help of thy spirit. So please, Lord, hear prayer. Bless us with the help of the Holy Spirit, we ask. In Christ's name and for his sake, for his honor and for his glory. Amen. Amen. We've read a a brief portion of this epistle because uh, we are going to begin today what I trust the Lord will use to greatly edify us over the next um, little while. I don't want to say how long it may be uh, or how short it may be, but I I believe the Lord would have us to go through Ephesians together. And we're going to begin today just in the first two verses and getting an introduction into this most glorious portion of the Word of God, one of the greatest epistles that we have, all scriptures inspired by God, and it's all profitable, yes, but this is one of the grandest displays of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have in our New Testament. And so I want to begin to go through this book with you, and I trust the Lord is going to use it greatly in each of us and stir our souls and give us matter Uh, for great praise. You see where the apostle begins, we're not going to deal with verse 3 today, but the very first thing he says in this epistle is, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And that really is an introduction to the grand theme of the epistle. Uh, If there could be a grand theme, there are major things here for us to consider, but really that's where we want to get to today. That as we, as we look at these first couple of verses, we want our hearts to be drawn out 
to bless God for all that he has blessed us with. And that will continue through the rest of the epistle. Just to note, uh, before we dig into our text, uh, some of the major themes, uh, at least three things that you can see very clearly. One of the major things that you see when you read through Ephesians is the emphasis on union with Christ, spiritual union with Him and His people. At the end of verse 1, we read the word, in Christ Jesus. And that phrase, in Christ, that statement, those words occur 22 times in these six chapters. And so it is heavily emphasized. The apostle is going to bring us back to that over and over and over again to emphasize that you're in Christ and all the ramifications that come from that. And as one man breaks down the epistle, uh, most would see it the same, that the first three chapters are really doctrinal, and the latter three chapters are practical. Not that doctrine is not practical, but he takes the doctrine and then applies it to specific areas. And as one man breaks it down, he notes that the first three chapters really deal with our wealth in Christ. All that we have in him. And he takes that from the statement in verse 3 that we're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And then the apostle goes on to detail those and what that means. And then chapter 4 through 6, he speaks of it as our walk in Christ. From the words of chapter 4 verse 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. In other words, in light of everything that I've covered Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And so really what we have here in this epistle in the first three chapters is a doctrinal display of the glories and of the riches and of the depths of the gospel. And then verses four, chapters 4 through 6, we have a practical application of that gospel to all areas of life. And it seems uh, to be, in light of, in comparison to the other epistles of Paul, a very general letter. Uh, it does not seem, uh, that is, that it confronts, at least on the surface, any specific error. There are things touched on, but there's really not one driving uh, force that he's combating here. In Romans, you can see that it's sort of focused on antinomianism in large measure, that is, People who are saying we don't have to obey the law. And then in Galatians you see that it's really against legalism. From start to last it's a false gospel that Paul's dealing with. But here really what he does is he just opens up the storehouse of the riches that we have in Christ. And he just begins to, to go through this very doxologically in order for us to be drawn to praise God and lift up our voices and, and behold the glory of the gospel. And that's really what he does throughout the entire thing and then tells us how to live in light of that. And there's a lesson in that for us, I think, even before we dig in, that even the very nature of this epistle, the fact that it is more general, at least from what I see now, as we dig into it, we may find other. But on the surface, from what I've read this week, it seems there's not really a specific error confronted. And there's a lesson in that. That as Paul is presenting these great and glorious truths of the gospel, as he's laying them out, we can learn a lesson that it's more valuable to study truth than error. 
What I mean is that the more we are grounded in the gospel and the more we know the truth, that will be the best way to guard us from error. And I think we can see something of that in this epistle. And so, um, just entitled this very simply today, An Introduction to Ephesians. An Introduction to Ephesians. And the first thing we want to see here from verse 1 is the inspired penman. The inspired penman. We read in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Well, when we come to that, we really need to understand something of, of Paul. Now, most of us here probably know, so I'm not going to preach a biographical message on Paul and spend all our time there, but it is important as we come to this epistle to just bring some things back to our minds in uh, connection with Paul, and especially, I think this will help us to understand not only who Paul was, but why he includes such statements, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. And so the first thing I want us to see here is his character outside of Christ. As we think about the Apostle Paul, his character outside of Christ. Who was Paul? What, what had he been involved in before? How did he come to this position where he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God? Well, we're told several things. We're not going to go through all the passages that would uh, give us that information. But just a couple, Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, Verse 13, referring to himself, he tells them, For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the tradition of my fathers. And so, what is he telling us there about his character outside of Christ before he came to know Christ? Well, he tells us that he was steeped in a false religion. He says that he profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals. He was exceedingly zealous of it. He was steeped in it. He tells us elsewhere that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And that he had a promising truth as a Pharisee. He was very much climbing the ladder and, and gaining heights as far as his status was concerned among the Pharisees. And yet, even though he was steeped in a false religious system, he was not without truth. The Apostle Paul, from his earliest days, would have been steeped in the Old Testament Scriptures. And he would have memorized long portions of Scripture. He would have no doubt, just for example, would have memorized Isaiah 53. And he would have known Isaiah 53 and these other passages that pointed to the Messiah. And he would have had them uh, very easily. He could have had them to call upon. But he was steeped in a false religion. He was slaughtering Christ's church. That's what he tells us. That he was slaughtering Christ's church. For I have how I persecuted, beyond measure, I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. Now you think of that. Him slaughtering Christ's church. And where the Lord took Paul from and brought him to, he took him from being a man slaughtering Christ's church and trying to destroy it to being a man 
who laid such a foundation for the church that it could stand upon, I believe it's 14, if memory serves, 14 of our New Testament epistles written by the Apostle Paul. That this man was taken from that level of, of darkness and brought to such great light that he then brings others. And it's just amazing to behold this writer as we think about the beginning verses, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But that was his character outside of Christ. Steeped in a false religion and slaughtering Christ's church. But then remember his conversion to Christ. And we see that uh, one of the best places to see that is Acts 26 in his giving of his testimony, his conversion to Christ. In Acts 26, verse 13, he's speaking to uh, King uh, Agrippa, and he says, At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. This is conversion to Christ. And I just, like I said, we're just highlighting these things to give us a context for who this person is who's writing. But you think about this. Paul was confronted by Christ, personally confronted by Jesus himself. And even as he noted in verse 11 that he was on his way, or rather verse 12, he went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests. And Jesus Christ himself comes and shines the light into Paul's eyes and blinds him and reveals himself to him. In a, in a personal manner, in a unique manner. And he does that day convert Paul and sets him on a path to be his, his servant forevermore. He's personally confronted by Jesus and he's personally converted by Jesus. And then we see his character in Christ. His character outside of Christ, his conversion to Christ, and his character in Christ. And this is what I really want us to focus on as we come to the epistle of the Ephesians. Because what are we told in the rest of Acts 26? We're told these things from verse 16. The Lord said to him, But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Now this is great. Because as we come to the epistle of the Ephesians, we see these very things so evidently set forth in Paul. And we'll get to this in a moment, but Ephesus was a place full of darkness. And yet Paul sends, uh, God sends Paul there to bring those people out of darkness and into the light. We're told several things about Paul's character in Christ. We're told that Christ made Paul his slave in verse 16. To make thee a minister. A minister. Now that word minister there has the idea, it could literally be said an oarsman. And the picture that's being given to us there is 
like the galley slaves, if you're familiar with, with old time ships and how there would be in the bottom of the ship this, this row of men on each side and they'd be rowing the boat in order for it to go. And that's the picture we're given. And those men were often slaves. They were enslaved into that work. And so Paul, we're told here about him that he was made Christ's slave, his minister, his oarsman, one who rose at his master's command. And we can learn a lesson there. Even as we think of Christ revealing Himself to this man and setting Him apart, though you and I are not the Apostle Paul, we are called to the same level of service. In the sense that we are called to obey our Lord whenever and whatever He says to us. That we are called to be His oarsmen. We are called to row at His command. We are called to obey whatever He says to us. And Christ made Paul his slave, but he also made him his witness. We're told that he made him a witness. To make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee. And the word there, witness, has the idea of like a courtroom witness. Someone who testifies what they've seen and nothing else. Paul is going to be this one who goes and witnesses to the Gentiles the things of God. He's going to be the man who goes and declares the whole counsel of God and nothing else. Not adding his own comments, not adding his own revelation, but adding first-hand revelation from the Lord to these people to which he's being sent. He's going to be a steward of the mysteries of God. And there's a lesson for us in that as well. That is, Christ if you're here today and you know Him as He has revealed Himself to you and set you apart for His service, that He expects you when He sends you forth to declare His Word. To be faithful to not hold anything back from what He said. And to be faithful to say everything He has said. To declare all His counsel. And that's what Paul was set aside to do. The Lord set him apart and sends him forth. He makes him, Christ makes him the apostle to the Gentiles. And that's what we see in verse 18 of chapter 26 of Acts. To open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. From darkness to light. And that brings us to where we are in Ephesians Chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why an apostle of Jesus Christ? Because he was made such by Christ, commissioned by Christ, owned by Christ. And then why by the will of God? Why by the will of God? Well, yes, because his office was according to God's will. But I think Partially what we're meant to understand of that, especially in light of the testimony of Paul, when we see by the will of God, that we are to understand that, in other words, it would not have happened except God brought it to pass. That, that Paul would never have been an apostle of Jesus Christ except by the will of God. Except by God laying hold of him and throwing him into the dust, blinding him humbling him, showing him his sin, and driving him to Christ. And so he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by 
the will of God. The word apostle there, meaning delegate, ambassador. One who is sent forth representing the one who sent him. And what are, what are we meant to do here at the beginning of this epistle then? When we see the name Paul, and we remember all those things that we just looked at, what are we meant to do? But behold, the grace of God in this man's life. As we begin here, we, we stand back and we say, how could God take someone like that and make him now one who's going to write such an epistle as this? And you can do that with yourself. You behold the grace of God. How could the Lord take someone like me, like you, save our souls, turn us from our sin, and thrust us into His service so that, so that you're able to minister to people and you're able to help people in a way you never thought you could. You think about Paul, what he did to people. He tortured them, get, getting them to blaspheme the name of God. And yet now, he's a pastor of these people. And he is constantly seeking to help them in the things of God. He's been brought from darkness to light, and now he's seeking to bring others from darkness to light. And you think of all the preparation in Paul's character, all the things that happened to him, and how the Lord prepared him. Who better to write such an epistle as this than one who was so grounded in what the Old Testament said? He didn't understand who the Messiah was. He didn't understand all the things that he was doing as far as his persecution of the church and what was really going on. But when the Lord regenerated him, when the Lord shined the light into his heart and enabled him to see the glory of Jesus Christ, there was no, better, there was no other man better prepared to write this epistle. And the Lord does that with each of us. We, we struggle to know why certain things were allowed into our past. And we, we, we struggle to know why we were allowed to do certain things. And yet later on you can see how the Lord, though He wasn't the author of your sin, was still using it, using your wickedness to bring to pass His good. And you can see that almost more than anyone else in the Apostle Paul. So that is the inspired penman. The one who writes as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And therefore everything he says is authoritative as if Jesus Christ himself is speaking. The inspired penman. The second thing I want us to see here is the privileged people. The privileged people. For the Apostle Paul says that he writes to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. The saints which are at Ephesus. The privileged people. Well, what are their privileges? Well, let us note them. They have been converted to Christ. They have been converted to Christ. They are saints at Ephesus. Now, 
think about all that we know about Ephesus, or rather, that we can know about Ephesus from Acts chapter 19, and the dark place that it was. They are saints at Ephesus now, when they used to be sinners at Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the darkest places in Asia Minor. And yet, we see it become a place where this church is a great beacon of light in the midst of darkness. If you go back and you read all that is in Acts, you see that they worship the great goddess Diana. And the worship of that goddess was very perverse, to say the least. I won't go into all those details, but there was temple prostitution involved in their worship of this great goddess. There was all manner of wicked things done in the name of worshiping this goddess. And that's where these people were. They were in this pagan world surrounded by darkness. And yet, God brought the light of the gospel to their dark land. We're told that he, was, he made Paul the one to turn from darkness to light. And you see that illustrated in these people. So they are now saints at Ephesus, and they used to be sinners at Ephesus. And I want us to see just a couple things from Acts 19. I'm not going to read that chapter, but I just want to highlight kind of what happened there in the founding of this church. Because initially, only a few were converted. Initially, only a few were converted. In Acts chapter 19, we're, we're told of this interaction of the Apostle Paul with certain disciples that he found at Ephesus and it's a difficult portion of Scripture to rightly interpret. There are many uh, variations of views as to what is actually going on here. And so, as best I can discern, uh, comparing Scripture with Scripture and trying to discern, uh, bring clarity to this, these few that are converted at the beginning were really Old Covenant believers, and now they're brought into New Covenant privileges and Acts 19, we're, we're told of these disciples, they, were, they had been baptized by John, they said, but yet they didn't understand that there was uh, the need for the Holy Ghost, or at least they're somewhat ignorant about the Holy Ghost. And so Paul says what John uh, came to do. He says, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so I submit to you that these are an example of people who were looking for the Messiah. They had been following John the Baptist somehow. They'd come into contact with him or some of his disciples and been introduced to this truth or rather grounded in, in that they were looking for one to come. And yet Paul comes to them and says he has come and it's Christ Jesus. And this is what John the Baptist said. And so they hear this and they convert to being followers of Christ. And so there were only a few. We're told in verse 7 that all the men were about 12. That Paul laid his hands upon them and the Holy Ghost came on them and they spake with tongues and prophesied and all the men were about 12. But that's it. For, for a very long while, those are the only ones we're told about that converted to Christ, that began following the Savior. And so... We see that initially only a few were converted, but then, eventually, many 
are converted. And you see that as, as the chapter goes on, that Paul stays there for two years. That he stays in Ephesus preaching. It says in verse 8 that he went into the synagogue after he converts these men. He went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when diverse were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. They heard, but they didn't believe. We're not told of anyone coming to Christ during that period until we get down to verse 18 of chapter 19. And these events that take place, I'm not going to read for the sake of time. But in verse 18, we're told that many believed and came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them all, burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. So what do we see there? We see Paul goes to this place. A few are initially converted. Eventually a lot are converted. And we see there the patience of Paul to stay there. And we see there the long suffering of God in the founding of this church. Paul was there for two years. He could have left at any time and taken the gospel with him. Sure, there were some that he would have left behind that would have known, but by and large, he's the one who is doing the primary teaching and instruction from the Word of God. And God leaves him there, even though these, these people are, are rejecting to some degree the truth. They're not believing on Christ. Yet God leaves Paul there and suffers long with these people and brings them to a saving knowledge of Christ. He converts them so that they become saints at Ephesus. And you can think about that as it relates to any church. You can see that in relation to any church where, where God plants a people and He suffers long with a community. Even though they reject the truth, even though they refuse to come to Christ, He suffers long. And even as God said to Paul concerning Corinth, I have much people in this city. But there was a time where they were not coming. And I simply make, I highlight this just for us to appreciate God's long suffering with this wicked world. That He is, is allowing His church to be in this world and through ebbs and flows going to bring sinners to Christ though it may be long periods of time in between. Initially there are twelve, and then there are many. But Paul stays faithful and preaches the word through it all. So they have been converted to Christ. But also these people have been consecrated to Christ. We're told back in Ephesians that they are saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. The word saint meaning holy or sacred, set apart. They are a people that have been set apart by Christ. And this is something that is objective because it was done by the Lord, but it was also subjective. You think about what they did as we read in Acts 19, that they took all their books 
and they burned them. That happened before all the people at Ephesus, marking them as people who are now distinct, people who are now living differently than they were before. People who are now rightly called saints because Christ has consecrated them to himself and called them out of that dark place. But also they're called faithful in Christ. And really what you have is is these terms are both describing the same people. There might be some who would have us to see the saints as a separate group and the faithful in Christ Jesus as another group. But when you do that, you run into some very odd problems as if to say the saints aren't faithful and the faithful aren't saints. These terms, they go together describing the same people. The saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Faithful here has the idea of of objectively or surely in spiritual union with Christ. That's the idea of faithful. It's this objective reality. That's what that word conveys. And it's an evident reality. They're saints at Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. In other words, their faithfulness is evident by the fact that they do good works. They burn their books to show and confess that they're now following Christ. And that pattern continues with them. That's the implication as we read of them being faithful in Christ Jesus. And in this way, they're very similar to those in Thessalonica. We're told of those in Thessalonica... In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, For they themselves, verse 9, show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And that's what these people did. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God. They became saints at Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. People brought into union with Christ Jesus. And because they're in union with Him, He makes them faithful. Let's not miss that. That that they did not become faithful because of how they turned from their sin. They didn't become faithful because they, they turned a new leaf. They became faithful. They became those who do good works. They became those who were separate from the world because Christ brought them into union with Himself. And it's the same for you and I. That that no one here who knows Christ can say, well, I'm faithful because of my own effort. I'm faithful because I, I keep myself faithful. No, we are faithful. We do good works to the Lord because He works in us. And He keeps us following Him. These people, I mean, you just think about it. These people used to be slaves to sin, serving an idol and serving themselves of that idol. And now they've been set free to serve Christ. And if you know Christ, that's you and that's me. That you though once were a slave to your sin, whether outwardly or inwardly, we all come from different backgrounds, but whether outwardly or inwardly, you were a slave to your sin, and yet Christ came and set you free in order that you would serve Him. In order that you would give yourself to Him. That you would be called 
saints which are at Orlando, <laughs> faithful in Christ Jesus. And we, we often think of saints as these like towering figures because of the errors of Rome and, and all the garbage that's been uh, promoted about saints. But a saint is someone who is in Jesus Christ. A saint is one who has been brought to know the living God through Christ. Amen. That is who these people are. But I also want you to see about these privileged people that they are being cared for by Christ. They've been converted to Christ, consecrated to Christ, and they are being cared for by Christ. Well, what do I mean? Well, through his ministers, Christ cares for his saints. Not only through his ministers, but primarily, and namely here, is through Paul. And I want us to see some things about the relationship between Paul and these people. Because they had a very intimate relationship in terms of his role as their pastor for several years and their role as his people. And we read about this and we find several things in Acts chapter 20 concerning his interaction with them. And we see first that they were carefully instructed in the gospel. These people were carefully instructed in the gospel. Paul tells us, or Luke tells us, in Acts 20 verse 17 concerning Paul and from Miletus... He sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. They have been carefully instructed in the gospel. Why is this important? Because Paul was a servant of Christ. And this is Christ caring for his church. Carefully instructing these people in the gospel. And I was greatly challenged when I read this. And what a challenge this is to any minister to read such statements. How Paul labored with these people to just carefully instruct them from house to house and publicly to keep nothing back from them. But to, to declare the counsel of God, as he says in verse 27, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. This is a great challenge to every minister of the gospel. And I ask you to pray for me. That the Lord would enable me to follow Paul as he, on behalf of Christ, carefully instructed these people in the gospel. They were carefully warned also about the dangers ahead. He tells them in Acts 20 verse 28, Take heed therefore, speaking to the elders, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And we see there the reason he's so carefully instructing them in the gospel. 
Because he knows that these grievous wolves are going to enter in. And so he tells the elders to take heed that they continue to do the same as he has done so that they would continue to do to feed the church of God. They're going to feed them with the word of God. And as we see that he's even goes so far to say also of your own selves. What a warning to every church. What a warning to us. What a warning to every faithful church in Christ that also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things. These people were grounded in the gospel by the Apostle Paul and yet he says to them, in, in spite of all the grounding that they've had in the gospel, these false teachers are still going to come in and they're still going to seek to lead you astray. And that is a sobering reality. Therefore, watch and remember. And we need to take heed to that. I need to take heed to that. And everybody here does. Because this is something that we see constantly in our day. False teachers everywhere. And you see, churches that are at one time faithful, at one time teaching the truth, fall. Because grievous wolves enter in and arise from among them. They were carefully instructed in the gospel, carefully warned about the dangers ahead. And they're being carefully written to now about the gospel. So not only did Paul instruct them for all those years and then warn them, but now he takes the time to write to them. In Ephesians chapter 1, he takes this time to write to them about the gospel. And so, in other words, great care is being taken to preserve this church. And we might ask, well, why? Why is there this just... I mean, we don't really read this about many other churches in the New Testament that so much time was given over to them. Paul labored in other churches, but there's so much information about how much this church was instructed in the gospel and why they received this epistle that is so saturated with the gospel. Well, because great effort was being made to destroy this church. And let it be said, let us... Take heed that every church that seeks to be faithful to Christ is under the direct attack of Satan and demons. That there is always going to be an effort to sow seeds of discord among brethren, to sow false teaching among the people. And in other words, eventually destroy it. And it is sobering. No doubt you know that this church was told in Revelation 2 that they had left their first love. They are told that they were, they were sound. I know thy works, Revelation 2, 2. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. In other words, they're doing what Paul had warned them about. They're, they're keeping out the false teachers. But yet, the Lord says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. In other words, and we'll see this more in a moment, 
They were being faithful to the doctrine. They were holding the fort, as it were, in terms of their theology, and they were keeping out people who were claiming to be apostles, and they're not. And yet, they had lost something for their love for Christ. And that is a sobering reality for us all. That we can be zealous for truth in such a way that we are somehow falling short of love for the author of the truth. And so, we ought to pray for one another in light of such things. Because if it could be said of Ephesus, a church that had had such privileged positions, such privileged teaching and instruction and warning, if it could happen to them, then it could happen to any of us. The last thing I want us to see here is the pastoral desire. The pastoral desire. We've seen the inspired penman and the privileged people. But why is Paul writing this? What is his pastoral desire? Well, his desire is seen in his preface. Verses 1 and 2. He says in verse 2, he's taking the time to write to them first and foremost, so there's obviously care for them. There's care about their souls. He's writing to them. But he says in verse 2, Grace be to you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I suggest to you that he is here desiring their spiritual welfare. That this is the classic apostolic greeting or salutation. You read it in all the epistles. And he is desiring with it their spiritual welfare. He's told, we're told that he says grace to you. Some people just take this as just a general greeting that it doesn't really mean anything. I think in light of the emphasis that is placed on these words, we can't say that. That there is significance in what Paul says. And he's desiring their spiritual welfare in the sense that when he says grace to you, I suggest to you, though those terms are are large terms and sometimes they can be difficult to define, they're used in various ways. I suggest to you here that they refer to edification and enablement in terms of grace. Grace be to you. That he wants them, as he's about to give this glorious display of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he wants them to be edified and then enabled in light of that edification to take to serving God. And he says, peace, grace be to you, and peace. And that word peace, again, used in various ways, but I believe it communicates here spiritual rest and prosperity in the gospel. Because that's what he's about to do. Right after he says that, he launches into this display of the gospel. And he says that it is going to come from the Father. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I suggest to you here that as he says that, we have a picture of the triune work of God in our sanctification. From God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, where's the Spirit? 
Well, we know from other places in Scripture that the Spirit is always the one who's applying the work of Christ. He's always the one applying the benefits that God supplies us with through Christ. And so I suggest to you what we have here is that we're being told this grace and this peace, this divine edification and enablement and this spiritual rest and prosperity in the gospel is going to come from the Father through Christ and by the Holy Spirit. And that is Paul's desire. He's desiring their spiritual welfare. And that's seen in his preface. But also, his desire is seen in his prayers. And with this, we'll finish. Throughout this epistle, there are several prayers, but at least two primary prayers that reveal the desire of the Apostle Paul. In chapter 1, verse 15, he says to them, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints... Cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance to the saints. Now that's significant because of what Paul says, that they would know Now, that word know is a word that has the idea of understanding. The reason I point this out is because he uses a different word for know in chapter 3, which we'll get to in just a second. This word know here in verse 18 has the idea of just their their understanding of of the realities of the gospel, their factual understanding, their mental comprehension of it. And so he prays for them to understand the truth. That's really what we get from reading that prayer. He's praying for them to understand the truth. But then, he prays for them to experience the truth. In chapter 3, he uses the word know again, but a different word. Chapter 3, verse 19, he says, And to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. And that word know is another Greek word that has the idea of experiential knowledge. You see it used in various places throughout the New Testament. And so we have one word that's understanding. We have another word that's experiential. And so what is Paul saying? He's saying, I want you to understand the doctrine and be grounded in the truth. But then I want you to to experience the truth. I want it to become real to you. And that's an important distinction as we begin this study of this epistle because there is a difference. We can have a factual understanding of things. We can know certain truths, but it's the experience of those truths. He uses the word comprehend in verse 18 of chapter 3 that you may be able to comprehend with all saints just before he uses the word know. And that word comprehend, it could be translated lay hold of. In other words, he's praying for them to have this understanding and to lay hold of this truth. Well, why is he praying that way? Why is that a prayer? Because both are gifts from God. Both are things that can only come through the ministry of the Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit is, to, is partly to give us light when we read the Word. Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. 
And then not only that, but to give us such an experience of it that it grips our heart. And so really what you have here is Paul praying for them to be grounded in their heads and then moved in their hearts. To what end? That their hands would be put to work. And then he launches into that in chapter 4. That ye would walk worthy. The head, the heart, and then the hands. All moved by God based on His truth flooding into the soul. And that's what Paul's praying for. That's his pastoral desire. As he displays all these glorious truths, it's not just so that we have this, this wonderful letter that we can read and, and you know, bless my soul. It's so that we'll be gripped and moved to serve the Lord in light of His gospel in all areas of life. And the interesting thing to note, and the sad thing to note, is the word used for love in chapter 3, to know the love of Christ. That word love is the same word that's used in Revelation 2-4, that you've left your first love. They'd lost the experiential understanding of truth. They had the facts, but they'd left their first love. And so again, we have to remember that those things are gifts from God and things that we have to guard. That we are constantly in a danger of just knowing facts and not experiencing the truth in a way that it affects how we live. In this epistle, we are going to be shown a glorious, unsearchable, incomprehensible display of the gospel of Christ. And then we are going to be challenged with how we are to walk in light of what we have been shown and what we have in and through Christ. And so I trust you will pray with me that Lord's Day by Lord's Day, God will bless His Word to our souls. And He will ground us in the truth, but also that He will enable us to experience the truth so that it will affect every way that we live. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, come before Thee in the name of Christ. We thank Thee for the Word of God. We thank Thee that we have such a Word. Lord, that as You wrote to these churches, so You write to our church. Lord, that You have taken it upon Yourself to preserve this Word for us to be able to study it together. And Lord, we pray that what has been said today, you will use to the edification of your people. Lord, that you will undertake, Lord, that you will burn away the chaff and that there would only the wheat would remain. Lord, that you would bless your people as we go through the rest of the day to know thy presence in our homes, to be blessed through your truth, that we would serve you that we would give ourselves wholly unto prayer and to good works 
that you would make us zealous for thy kingdom. And Lord, we ask that you would cause thy truth to take root in our hearts and not merely in our heads. Please hear prayer, Lord. If there be one here today who's outside of Christ, who knows nothing of the glory of the gospel, we pray that you will reveal thyself to that soul. Please hear our prayers, we ask. Depart us now with thy blessing. Keep us in thy favor, O Lord. Keep us from falling. In Jesus' name, amen.